You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. If you are in many churches, a lot of times um, congregational singing is not congregational singing. And so to hear the voices around singing all different kinds of songs this evening, that was a huge blessing to me. That's why we sing. We sing to God, but we also sing for the encouragement of others around us. And so thank you so much for that. It it means a lot. You look in the New Testament and you'll see um, most of the epistles, well, all the epistles, they are letters written to particular churches, and they always start off with some kind of greeting. And so whenever I visit a church, I want to bring greetings from New Hope Church in Tennessee to uh, Faith Church here in Chandler and uh, just say thank you for what you're doing, Um, your work with Matt's house and uh, just how God's using you in this community. Uh, again, Daniel and I, were family and we're really good friends. Um, but even outside of that, God is really using this, this church to do a mighty work in this community that I've heard about it in Tennessee amongst our, our movement. And so thank you. Um, you are making a difference. Sometimes when you are in the process of making a difference, you don't feel like you're making a difference, but you are. And so I'm very grateful for you as a congregation tonight. Are you there in Mark chapter 7? Well, let me do what I do with our congregation. I won't make you stand, but I'm going to read the passage of Scripture that we're going to be in tonight just so you'll know what we're going to be talking about, and then we'll talk about it, if that's okay. It's going to be about 23 verses, okay? So you might have to hang with me. I know on a Monday night to just sit and read amongst the congregation, it might be difficult, but hang with me, and hopefully we'll get into it all right. All right, so Mark chapter 7, and we're going to pick up in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 23 talking about Jesus and his confrontation with Pharisees. Verse 1, Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus in verse 5, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashen hands? Jesus answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah the prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such things like ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, If a man shall say to his father or mother, It is Corban, that is to say a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition which ye have delivered, and many such things like ye do. And when he had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand. There is nothing from without a man that entering unto him can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those 
or they that defile the man. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And when he had entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked him concerning the parable, and he said to them, Are you so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him? Because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the draught, purging all meats. And he said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. I've been praying for quite some time since Pastor Daniel asked me to preach tonight um, what to what to preach to a congregation that I'm acquainted with, but I, I don't know. Sometimes that's difficult. If it is a revival service, I, I'm working off the understanding that the majority of us are believers. There, there might be a few who you've just come, you've been invited by a friend, and we are so thankful that you're here. But I don't know about your life, but the times in my life when I am at my lowest spiritually, hypocrisy comes in really quick. And so tonight, I want us to take a look at hypocrisy. Now, I was told a long time ago by a pastor friend of mine that there are two ways that you can come to church, two ways you can listen to a sermon. You can either come with a pitchfork or you can come with a fork. What he meant by that was, you can come with a pitchfork, and whenever the pastor says something, you'd be like, oh yeah, I know who needs that. And you can spread it around, and you can dish it out to the people who you know, they're a hypocrite, yeah, they need to hear that. Or you could come with a fork, and you could take it yourself. You could ingest it into your life, and you could adapt and change and hear the gospel and let it change you. So I hope that we have come with our forks tonight, and not our pitchforks. Let's pray. Lord, I love you, and I thank you for this congregation. Thank you, God, for how you're working in them and through them. And God, we pray tonight that you will use your word. Your word will go forth, that it will not return into you void, as Scripture says. It will accomplish the task for which you have called it. And God, I pray that you'll help us. Help us to have a deep, sincere look at our own lives. It's in your precious name I pray, Jesus. Amen. What's the rival of the local high school? Is there another... What's the rivalry? Do we have one? Uh, Boonville and Castle. Is it, is it pretty, pretty good? Pretty strenuous? Yeah? Okay. No. <laughs> um, you know, we're getting into the March Madness. The NCAA tournament's coming up, and you'll have rivalries that are harkening back for decades, that they've, they've always had it out for each other. And we're going to see some of these ro- rivalries unfold this week throughout the basketball tournament. Um, When we come to Mark chapter 7, Jesus is meeting his rivals in some way, shape, or form. They're the Pharisees. They're the group of men that they had a chip on their shoulder. They had something against Jesus. Every single time they are mentioned, it's they're trying to find fault with Jesus. There's an issue always. Jesus had no particular animosity towards them. He had nothing to prove to them. He didn't have a chip on his shoulder. They did towards him, though. He was gaining all this popularity. 
as a spiritual teacher, and they were just kind of being left in the dust. So just four chapters earlier in Mark chapter 3, they met with a group called the Herodians, and at that point, early in Jesus' ministry, they had begun to plot to destroy Jesus. So Jesus being crucified on the cross was not something that just happened. This was a a three-and-a-half-year process that the Pharisees had been working all along. That's why I say they're rivals. Ironically, when we come to Jesus in chapter 7, his popularity is kind of already trending towards the decline. If you read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you try to do it in a harmonious way, you'll find that the pinnacle, the the height of Jesus' popularity, is when he fed about 5,000 men on a hillside with just five loaves and two fish. Now, scholars have said that that's just the men count, and they have estimated that it could be upwards of 20,000 people. I don't care how many it is. Feeding this congregation with five loaves and two fish, that's a miracle, right? Okay? So at that point, that's the pinnacle of Jesus' ministry, and from that point on, you will see a steady decline in the multitudes of people who come after Jesus. There's still a group. There's still a large contingent. He's going to feed 4,000 a little later on, but... That's the pinnacle. Ever since then, it starts kind of going down. In Mark chapter 6, verse 56, Mark does a great deal of summarizing Jesus' ministry uh, when he says, And whithersoever Jesus entered into villages or cities or country, they laid the sick in the streets and besought him that they might touch, if it were, but the border of his garment, and as many as touched him were made whole. But Jesus isn't concerned with crowds. Um, he's not in it to break any records. He's not tweeting how many they had on Sunday. He's not interested in preacher numbers. You know what those are? Like one, two, a hundred. Oh, we had about 500 people. Yeah, that's a good number today. Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. That's why he's here. That's why he comes in the Gospels. Why he came into history, excuse me. And oftentimes throughout the gospel account, you'll see that the crowd actually inhibits Jesus' ability to reach the one, to reach the individual, to reach the lost sheep of Israel. The Pharisees, they, I mean, they definitely fit into this category of lost. They are as lost as lost can be. But here's something that I don't think of often enough. Jesus loves the Pharisees. He loves them. I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon ever praising the Pharisees, and rightfully so. They're not, they're, they've got messed up theology. They're, they're a group that they are bent towards their own. But sometimes we look at them living 2,000 years ago, and we make such harsh judgments, and we think that Jesus was just you know, out to get. He loves these men. Absolutely loves them. He's going to have strong words for them. Don't get me wrong. He's going to be very upfront with them. And that's because their leadership is attracting innocent people. And it's making them live a life filled with religiosity, emptiness. And they're saying, add this, add this, add this. And this, these people are already poor and spiritually bankrupt. And, and the Pharisees are saying, do all these things and then God will love you. Jesus is not cool with that. He's not okay with that. So he's going to have strong words, but he loves these men. He died at their hands on the cross. They were the ones who had started this whole process. But do you remember 
in one of his last dying breaths, do you remember what he prayed for the Pharisees who were standing in judgment at his feet? He prayed to his father and he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. He absolutely loves hypocrites. Jesus loves these Pharisees. So they're not his enemies. And and even if they are his enemies, Jesus told us earlier to love our enemies. So he loves them with all their faults, with all their failures, with all their mess-ups and wrong theology. He loves them. So I describe them as a rivalry against Jesus, but don't mistake Jesus' passion for one-upmanship with them. He's not just holding it over them. I'm right, you're wrong. It's not taunting. He loves them so much that he wants to rescue them out of this hypocritical jail that they have built for themselves. And so they come to him. All these Pharisees, certain of the scribes, which came from Jerusalem, verse 1 tells us. I think, it's, I think we could read that, that it denotes their whole purpose for coming from Jerusalem was to confront Jesus. This was a planned hit. This was not just a, oh, past them on the street, let's call them out for something. They have come from Jerusalem to the Capernaum hillside to see how they can nitpick Jesus. And when they saw him, verse 2, some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that's to say with unwashed hands, they found fault. But the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? As the Pharisees were watching Jesus and his disciples from a ways off, probably strategizing how they could corner Jesus and find fault with his ministry, they see some of his disciples, maybe all of his disciples, we don't know. They eat some food in the marketplace without properly washing their hands. Now that's an affront to Jewish tradition, not Scripture. Nowhere in the Bible will you find meticulous details on how to wash your hands. This is all man-made stuff that, that the Pharisees had made up, this particular washing of hands. It's all tradition. And so I don't want you to think that the disciples are breaking the law of God. They're breaking man's laws. And that, that hurts. That, uh, I mean, they, they just kind of bristle at the disciples. They can't stand that they are not doing things the way they want them to do. I don't think they're feigning disgust here. I don't think they're faking it. Uh, I don't think they're just trying to make a scene. I think they are, they're literally offended at what these disciples are doing. What's going on is that the disciples didn't wash properly. It's not like they had mud dripping off of their hands, but they didn't wash their hands in the special way that the Pharisees had prescribed. Like verse 3 says, we don't know exactly how they were to wash specifically, but a very literal translation of the original language is that they washed their hands with the fists. And so some have suggested that they would regularly wash their hands and then to make sure that their fingers did not get any kind of Gentile dirt on them which would defile them, they would clench their hands and they would scrub the rest of their arms to make sure that when it was time to eat that their hands, their fingers, which was touching the food, would be clean enough to eat and untouched by Gentile dirt. 
And so the Pharisees, they, they saw the disciples wash and their palms were open when they washed their hands. That's a big deal. They are ticked. Can't believe that happened. They'd gone against made-up laws. Even the, the Pharisees, they just call it the tradition of the elders. They're not claiming it as scripture. We don't know the exact setting. Jesus could have been about to sit down to eat. He might have been walking through the market when all this happened. Or he might have just been starting to preach on the street corner when they interrupt him with this very important issue about proper hand-washing technique. But they ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of elders? Now, Jesus' answer is going to be pointed. It is going to be direct, and it will accomplish its intended goal. He says in verse 6, Well hath Isaiah, or Isaiah, prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people in Isaiah, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandments of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other things like ye do. I don't know about if you've ever had a confrontation with somebody where you pointed at them and you called them a hypocrite, but I'm going to guess if you have, probably didn't end very well, right? Um, if you ever say you are a hypocrite to somebody, you can usually just see the anger kind of rising up in them. There's no real nice way to say it. I, I've never seen a conversation where one person claims that the other person is a hypocrite in their a conversation. An argument uh, where one person says, you're a hypocrite. Somebody just said, well, thank you for that spiritual insight that I needed to hear that. I appreciate it. God bless you for that. Bless your heart, right? That's usually how it ends up. But the temperatures rising, the veins in the Pharisees' foreheads are popping They cannot believe what Jesus has just said. He called us, what? Now, earlier in the book of Matthew, Jesus called them vipers. (laughs) Jesus called them sons of the devil. And so in comparison, hypocrites really isn't too bad. They're, They're pretty used to this back and forth with Jesus. But he calls them hypocrites. You might think you know what hypocrite or what a hypocrite is, and you might be able to give me ten examples of who hypocrites are in your life. It might be your spiritual gift, spotting hypocrites. But I want us to slow down tonight and just reflect and kind of see this word for the first time, if we can. The word hypocrite, it's an original Greek word. I mean, the Greek word is hypocritos. So we have taken the English word hypocrite and we have just stolen it from Greek, from the original language in the text, Hippocrates. It's not a bad word. Um, it doesn't really even have a negative connotation until Jesus begins using it in this vein. It was what the players, what the actors on a Greek stage were called when they wore a mask. You know those um, comedy tragedy masks that every drama department has adopted as their logo, the really happy face, really sad face. That's what the Greek actors wore on stage. They didn't have the luxury of having a close-up zoom-in shot on TV, and so the actors would come out and they would wear masks if they were portraying somebody as mad in order to clue the audience in who was really far back and couldn't see. They would wear a really mad mask or a really sad mask if it was a tragedy or a really happy mask mask if it was a comedy. That was how it went. 
So when Jesus looks at them and he calls them hypocrites, he says, you mask wearers. The thing about a mask is that it hides what is underneath. It's a facade. It's fake. The actor on the stage, he could be, he could be portraying somebody who is incredibly angry, but inside he's playing the best role of his life and he has never had it better. He could be incredibly happy, but he's wearing the mad mask. Well, when Jesus looks at them and he calls them mask wearers, he is saying, you are wearing a mask of religion and underneath dead men's bones. You've got nothing underneath. You are a suit You are a mask. You are an actor. They wear this mask of spirituality, but they are filled with nothing but emptiness, nothing with filthy hearts, nothing but filthy hearts, and nothing but pride. And so to the issue of his disciples washing their hands correctly, if I could summarize what Jesus says, he looks at them and he says, you might have really clean hands, but you have filthy hearts. Filthy hearts. You look clean on the outside, but you are disgusting on the inside. Jesus quotes from Isaiah. We've already read that a couple of times, but those words that Jesus quoted, they still ring true today. He says, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit, in vain do they worship me. Jesus says three things of Pharisees, of hypocrites. He says that they are filled with empty words, that they are filled with filthy hearts, and they are filled with prideful worship. In fact, that is the three marks of a hypocrite in this passage. I want to walk us through the rest of Jesus' confrontation. And remember, there's two ways to approach a sermon with a pitchfork or a fork. Before we look down the pew and think, I sure am glad that they're here on Monday night for a revival service, let's first look at our own life and think, I sure am glad that I'm here tonight. Every one of us can find ourselves among the Pharisees to a certain degree. So let's talk about empty words. Jesus is going to prove his point about their empty words by calling out one of their unbiblical practices. We read it earlier. He mentions the practice of Corban, C-O-R-B-A-N. Hang with me as we read through this, and I'm going to try to explain it on the tail end. It's something that we're not accustomed to. In verse 9, he said to them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth his father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, If a man shall say to his father or mother, It is Corban, that is to say a gift, by, whatever, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer no more to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition which ye have delivered, and many such like things you do. Honor your father and mother. That was the law that Moses wrote that God had given him, the Ten Commandments. It's one of those ten. And it doesn't stop when you turn 18, and it doesn't stop when you leave the house. And all the parents are like, amen. Now, honor thy father and thy mother. I would suggest it really starts when you turn 18. It really starts when you leave the house. Here's what I mean by that. 
in Scripture when it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Obedience and honor are slightly different. Okay? Obedience for children is do what your parents say. That is what they say you do. Honor is something a little different. It takes an account obedience, but I don't know many 50-year-old men who are calling up mama asking, mom, can I do this? So it's not necessarily obedience. Honor is more about making a good name for your parents. Bringing honor to their name, if we could say it in that way. So that's the principle that we're all supposed to live by. Honor thy father and thy mother. But the Pharisees, they had found a loophole. Or they had made a loophole of this law. Instead of using their income to take care of their aging elderly parents... They had started this principle of Corbin, which basically, whenever they got their paycheck, whenever they got their crop in, they would speak the word almost mystically over it, Corbin, and then they would go to their parents and they would say, this, all that I own, is a gift to God. And it would alleviate all of their responsibilities towards their parents which is a really disgusting use of religion. Because here's the thing. That sounds really good. That sounds super spiritual. But if you were to study the principle of Corbin out that they had invented, that they had invented it wasn't talking about immediate payment. It's possible we get the idea in this text that they are taking their paycheck, they're signing it over, and they're giving it to the temple. That's not what they're doing at all. They're saying Corbin over all that they own, and essentially they are going to make a will later that when they die, all that they have will be given to the temple, will be given to the synagogue, will be given to particular teachers. They are able to do what they want with all of the money that they own. But they're saying, Mom, Dad, you don't want me to help you out. You don't want me to give you money because if I do, that's less money that I can give to God later. And it's written in such a way that some of the Jewish parents were probably like, wow, you are such a good son. We did such a good job with you. But it's absolutely disgusting. (laughs) It is empty words. Corbin. Mom, I know you need your prescriptions filled, but this money's for God. And he goes out and buys another boat. Kind of what's going on here. Cheap talk. Using the claim that everything that you have is a gift to God in order to get out of responsibilities. I think we'd all agree that that's pretty pathetic. But what about us? Because we love talking about people in the Bible. We don't like talking about us. (laughs) We don't speak Corbin over our paycheck. But we are, I am, I'm here with you, absolutely filled to the brim with empty words. We sing songs in the hymn book, on the screen, empty words. We pray prayers, empty words. You know, most of the songs that we sing, they're pledges to God. I mean, just about every song we will sing, there is some kind of pledge of, Lord, I will do this. But we have no intention of living that out. 
We sing it because everybody else is, but it's an empty pledge, an empty promise. It is as empty as Corbin. We say all the right things. We go through all the right motions spiritually, but we don't mean it. We don our suit and tie. We brush up on our flowery biblical words in case we're called on for public prayer that day, but it's not real. You've got, everyone's, you've got everyone else fooled with your clean hands, but you know, man, you know. You, you don't want to admit it, and you might not even want to think about it tonight, but you know that within is nothing but dead men's bones. A skeleton wearing a suit. That's what Jesus said of the Pharisees in another passage. He called them whitewashed tombs. He said, oh, you are beautiful, ornate, handcrafted, clean caskets filled with nothing but rot, nothing but deadness, filled with emptiness. And that kind of leads us into the second mark of of hypocrisy, the filthy hearts. Not just empty words, but filthy hearts. Verse 14, And when Jesus had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, Hearken unto me, every one of you, and, and understand. There's nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile the man. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 17, And when he, had, and when he was entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked him concerning this parable, and he said to them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth the man, it cannot defile him? Because it entereth not into his heart, but into his belly, and goeth out into the draught, purging all meats. And he said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. So he goes back to the original issue that the Pharisees had confronted him with. This idea of washing hands. And he says, don't you know that things that you ingest, they can't defile you. The things that come out of you, that's what defiles you. Jesus wants to make sure that these people who they've grown up in a very religious culture, only eating certain things and only eating certain things prepared a certain way, he makes sure that they know that ceremonial hand washing and only eating certain foods is not the problem with humanity. If you think that's the problem, fellas, you got another thing coming, he's telling his disciples. It's not the problem with mankind. Eating certain foods, eating with unwashed hands, that's not the issue. And very plainly, Jesus explains to his disciples later, he says, you eat something bad, it goes to your stomach, it's digested, no big deal. The real problem of humanity is not what he puts in, but what comes out. Here's the issue. We have a sin problem. A sin problem. Mankind has a sin problem. And we have tried everything in the world to fix this sin problem. Now we can look back almost mockingly at the Pharisees who lived 2,000 years ago who made such a big deal about hand washing and we can ridicule them, but what are the spiritual hand washings that you have in your life? 
What are the spiritual band-aids that you put on your heart to make yourself feel better or look better to other people? For them, it was hand-washing, but for you, for me, it's something completely different. And we're about to enter a time in most of our calendars where people of different faiths, from all different faiths, they're going to fast from that, they're going to wear this, they're going to smear ashes, they're going to attend special services, And for the most part, there's nothing wrong with that. But you need to hear this. The sin problem still remains. No matter what you fast from, no matter what you put on, no matter what you smear, the sin problem is there. It's not coming off. What you wear, don't wear. What you observe, don't observe. Eat, don't eat. It's still there. There's no amount of hand-washing. There's no amount of spiritual ritual, church attendance, Bible reading, praying towards Mecca, groveling on your knees that will fix your heart. Listen to me. There is no outward adjustment that's going to fix your heart. Nothing will. You might think, well, if I just come to church more, it's not going to fix your heart. I love church. I've made my life church. But this place, these meetings, in and of themselves, they will not change you. You will come in and leave the exact same filthy heart person. All it does is just, it just puts a, another coat of lacquer on the casket. That's all it does. Still dead men's bones inside. But listen. Because this is Christianity. This is the difference from all other religions out there. Jesus doesn't just come to make you look pretty on the outside. He comes to make you live on the inside. So it's not just lacquering the casket, making everything look nice on the outside. He comes in to give you a well springing up with life. That is why He came. That's why He died. Jeremiah 17.9, Jeremiah wrote it so well. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? I've got a friend who, he wakes up every morning, he's got it by his mirror, he's got this verse on the mirror, and he looks in his mirror and says, you are deceitful among all things. Who can know it? Just read that list again. All that comes out of the heart of man, and think of how many times this week, Some of these things have come out of your heart. By the way, if you're like me, when you read your Bibles, it's really easy to fall into the trap of saying, well, in this passage there's really bad sins, and then there's okay sins. Look, Jesus said these sins in one breath. He doesn't say, this is what comes out of of really, really bad men, and these are the things that comes out of not so bad men. He's saying, this is what comes out of the heart of man. Verse 21, from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts. Had any this week? Adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Don't kid yourself. You don't need an attitude adjustment, a new perspective. You don't need to turn over a new leaf. You don't need to make reparations. You don't need to love yourself more. You need a new heart. You remember King David 
in the Old Testament, Psalm 51, King David of Israel, he had, he had just been caught in this adulterous affair with Bathsheba. He's got an innocent man's blood dripping from his filthy heart. He knows that he's corrupt, and he knows he's broken. He knows he's unclean, and that's why he cries out in Psalm 51.10. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. There's no outward thing I can do to absolve myself of these things that I have done. I need clean hearts inside me. And until we come to that point, not just an adjusted heart, not just a bit of Jesus sprinkled into our hearts, until we say, I need a clean heart, I need a new heart, your life, it's going to be filled with empty words and a filthy heart. And prideful worship. Jesus told the Pharisees that by sticking to these religious band-aids of hand-washing and other ceremonies instead of the Bible, they were like, verse 8, laying aside the commandment of God. They're taking the Bible. Well, that's good and all, but how about this? Essentially, Jesus tells me, you're not, in, you're not even interested in worshiping God. That's why Isaiah said that they worshiped God in vain, verse 7. Probably the better way to read that is they worshiped God in their vanity. You can't do that. You can't worship God in your pride. If you are worshiping God in your pride, you know who you're worshiping? Yourself. We have a lot of gods in America. A lot of gods. And they can walk and they can move and they can breathe and they can talk and they're you and me. We have bowed down to the priests of our hearts ourselves. Made us the king instead of Christ. This hypocritical worship It's nothing new. It's as old as Cain. You remember Cain in the Genesis account? He he brings his vegetables before God. And he does so, so that mom and dad and Abel can, wow, Cain, that is so good. Man, really good crop. And you're giving all that to God, amazing. He's not worshiping God. He's He's worshiping himself. Israel had been stricken with this hypocrisy for generations In fact, Isaiah, he records it in chapter 1, verse 14, where God says, and he has said this often throughout the Old Testament, he tells the Israelites, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. (laughs) If I could paraphrase and modernize what God told the ancient Israelites in today's language, he says, I hate seeing you in church like this. You come to me with feasts and these special services, but you are a hypocrite and I hate it. It is a burden to me. So if you're here and you're just going through the motions of spirituality, church is just a ceremonial hand-washing thing for you to make yourself feel good, look good, you need to know You're not worshiping God tonight. You are worshiping yourself. 
You've used the hymns as an ode to how great you are and not a God. But you also need to know something else. God loves you. Absolutely adores you. It makes us feel so spiritual when we say stuff like, you know, God loves the murderer. And he absolutely does. God loves those people who are on death row. He absolutely does. It makes us feel like we know our Bibles well when we say, it doesn't matter how far you've gone, God still loves you. And he absolutely does. But it's a very different thing when we understand the full weight of this idea of God's love when we say, God loves hypocrites. Man, I sure am glad that God loves this hypocrite. In fact, he loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, whatever hypocrite believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus loves you so much that he died to cleanse you. He took the weight of all the world's filthy hearts on him and he offers a clean heart, a right spirit to all who cry out to him. A little further on in this Isaiah passage that we read from earlier, the Lord says in verse 18 of Isaiah 1, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That is written to hypocrites, to the people who he just said, I hate seeing you in church. He says, come Let's reason together. Let's think through this together. Though your sins are as scarlet, I will make you as white as snow. God took your hypocrisy and he loaded up on the shoulders of his son dying on the cross. And Jesus died with it clinging to him so that you could live without it infesting your heart. If I could boil the whole thing down to this, I want you to go with me in your minds to that time when you and everybody who has ever lived will have an experience like this, when you stand before God. Now imagine with me, I don't think this will actually happen, but imagine with me that God looks at you and he asks you, what have you done to deserve heaven? Why should I let you into heaven? The answer that the Pharisees were ready to give was, well, look, God, I washed my hands every day, multiple times a day, in a special way. You think God's impressed? No. We need to understand that anything that we do spiritually, so that we look or just feel better from doing it. It is as if we are standing before God and saying, but they're really clean, God. I went to church every week. I served on boards. I, I sang. I, I taught a Sunday school class. I did all these things, God. Did all of it. And we've got really clean hands, but we've got filthy hearts. And that is why God says, come now. Let us reason together. Does that sound 
write to you that you can get to heaven with clean, washed hands? That's not it at all. It doesn't make any sense. We laugh at it now, looking at it that way. Let's reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though you're filled with empty words, though your heart is filthy, and though you've pridefully worshipped yourself, He can make you white as snow. Clean hands, clean heart, before a clean and holy God. What else could we want for in this life or the next? So a few weeks ago, I had some people in my church. I love my congregation. Man, they are incredibly encouraging. And I had several guys come up to me later. And I had preached a sermon, and they came up to me and they said, you, you were preaching right at me. What you were saying, that is, that is how I see my life. I, I am going down that path. I am well into that path. I am I'm there. In your sermon, you didn't tell me what to do about it. <laughs> I mean, that's like the ultimate failure of, of a preacher. It's like, hey, you're horrible. See you later. <laughs> So it's like the, the possibility is looking at this passage saying, hey, you got clean hands, you got filthy hearts, mic drop, walk away. But that's not what Jesus does. So what should we as hypocrites do? How do we fix this issue? <coughs> Understand, you can't fix it. It's God who's fixing it. But what's the way? How do we get down this path? Could I suggest a few things, just three? Number one, admit it. There's a ton of hypocrites in this world and and they are so good at acting that they are fooling themselves. They have so worn the mask for so long that they think looking in the mirror that that's them. No, that's a mask. So admit it. You know, just like in AA, when people start by saying, hi, I'm, I'm Corey and I'm an alcoholic. That's... That's what we need to do often, church. Hi, I'm Corey, and I'm a hypocrite. We need to admit it and stop fooling ourselves. We've got this sin in our life. Every one of us has hypocritical tendencies in our life. We all want to look good. But more importantly than just admitting it, repent it. Repent. If you just tell yourself you're a hypocrite, you're going to be depressed the rest of your life. You don't know who you are. You've worn a mask for so long, you take it off, you don't know who you are. You repent to God, and He's going to begin to reveal you who you are, and He's going to start chipping away at that hypocritical life until eventually, when we're ultimately glorified in Christ and we're with heaven, it's not us who are standing there, it's Jesus standing there. That's only going to come if you repent of that and you turn from it. Something else that I would say, the third thing to do, is I would say confess that sin to a brother or sister in Christ. You know, when Scripture says confess your faults one to another, maybe it's because there have been some in religion who they've made that into Here's a guy here and a screen here, and I say all the bad things I've done. He tells me, say this incantation, and then I walk out absolved. We've made confess your faults one to another look like that. That's not what it looks like. Then you mentioned small groups earlier. 
That's what small groups is for. When you go to a Christian brother or a Christian sister on the same level with you or maybe a spiritual mentor in your life and you're saying, look, I am a hypocrite and I need you with all the grace that you can, with all the love that you can, I need you to call me out on it while I'm hypocritically talking. I'm admitting it, I am repenting of it, and I'm confessing it to another brother in Christ so that I can get over this and stop faking all this stuff. But maybe you're the Pharisee in the deepest, darkest place this evening. You've never asked God for a clean heart, and you're just depending on all the outward stuff. I want to close tonight by just reading a song that my wife Rachel has sung before that it means a lot to me. It, it takes us into the mind of the thief on the cross. You remember him? We don't know what he had done, but he called out to Jesus in the last hours and he says, remember me in paradise. And Jesus said, today, you will be with me in paradise. You know, that guy, he wasn't wearing a mask. I mean, he was completely and totally for all the world to see, naked on the cross. His sin was hanging on him deeply. He had no chance to wash his hands. He had no chance to put a mask on. He had no chance to do anything. But Jesus said, today, you will be with me in paradise. So this song takes us behind that scene. Condemned to die on a cross for crimes he had done. He was guilty. Everyone could see. But his destiny was changed as he looked at Christ and said, when your kingdom comes, remember me. In paradise that day he stood just like the Lord had said he would, surrounded by those who had gone before. One said to him, friend, how did you come? What are the deeds you have done? With tears in his eyes, I can hear him reply. There are no merits to my name. No works I can claim. He who brought me here told me to say, I have come by the way of the cross. I've come by the way of the cross. It's nothing I have done. It's the suffering of God's Son. I have come by the way of the cross. Christian, we need to claim that. Unbeliever, you need to hear that. That there's no amount of hand washing, there's no amount of getting your life right that's going to get you into a relationship with Jesus. It is merely, Lord, remember me. And today, He will give you a clean heart. And the clean hands, the clean works that's going to come after it. But you need to change from the inside first. And He's ready tonight. Will you bow with me?